0: Back in the 1950s, C.S. Lewis wrote a book where God is pictured as a lion. Now, his name is Aslan in that book. And Nad uh, has pointed out to me with great delight that it's the Turkish word uh, for lion. That's right, isn't it? Oh, good. I got that right. There we go. But uh, there, he's pictured as, as a lion all the way through the, the different books. And uh, C.S. Lewis was not the first person to picture God as a lion. Now, arguably, it's Jacob. Uh, in Genesis, as he looks forward to the lion from the tribe of Judah, who is the Lord Jesus, who is God himself. But really, in terms of running with the idea, it was Amos who made the most of this image. Now, Amos wasn't a, a prophet by profession, if you like. He, he was actually a shepherd. And as such, he would be used to lions. Uh, they were a common part of the, uh, the world at that point. They would come and they would chase your sheep. And he was called as a prophet to speak. Uh, to the northern kingdom especially. And the time that he's preaching is towards the end of the northern kingdom of Israel. But it was actually a fairly stable time, politically speaking, the the sort of quiet before the storm. Jeroboam II was on the throne in Israel, and he reigned for 41 years. I can still say that's longer than my lifetime, just about. (laughs) But most of the northern kings, if you follow them through, they only reign a few years before they're assassinated or something happens. Jeroboam managed 41 years. Um, And that stability meant that Israel and Judah in the south as well had grown prosperous and wealthy. But that doesn't mean that everything is okay. God sends them a wake-up call in the guise of the prophet Amos. He's going to wake them up from their stupor in their prosperity and comfort. So our first point is the lion roars. That's really chapters one to two. God introduces himself right at the beginning as a roaring lion. So chapter one, verse two, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. He's roaring from the peak of Mount Zion, declaring judgments on the nations around God's people. And as you go through chapters one to two, there's judgments on Damascus, on Gaza, on Tyre, on Edom, on Ammon, on Moab. And then the twist comes in chapter two. God then starts to declare judgment on Judah and Israel. God is clear about their sins. Judah had rejected the law, 2 verse 4. But the northern kingdom had gone much, much further. They were trampling on the poor and afflicted. They were passing round sexual partners between them, even within families. They were making Nazarites who'd taken special vows not to drink, they were making them drink wine. They were forbidding prophets to prophesy. The picture that you get is that Israel has become an absolute and total mess. So, from chapters three onwards, it speaks of the judgment that he brings upon them especially, like I say, to the northern kingdom. That's our shortest point. The other two are a bit longer. The lion pounces. In chapters 3 to 6, God brings oracles to the people through Amos. Four oracles telling what is to come. The first is in chapter 3. The lion has roared and the prophet has heard it. The roar means the lion is coming for his prey. And Israel, we're told, is that prey. All that will be left of them is like the leftovers of a sheep after a lion has devoured it, a leg or two, an ear. The lion will come and destroy their idolatrous altar in Bethel. He'll destroy their first homes and their second homes. Again, a bit of a clue that they are um, really quite well off at this point. They're called houses of ivory. This is a prosperous place, but it's going to come crashing down. That's the first oracle. The second is in chapter four. Here the women are likened to luxurious cows, just like this sort of farming imagery. It's sort of the Aberdeen Angus of the ancient world, lazing around drunk and living off the backs of the poor. The sort of closest you get to it, I think now, is that I've never, I've never watched it, but I'm assuming uh, sort of desperate housewives kind of thing. You know, they're, they're all at home not quite knowing what to do, so they get in themselves into trouble. But that cow imagery is sort of twisted as we're reminded that, well, what happens to animals? They're led to the slaughter, and that's what's going to happen to these women. The men, while that's all happening, they're carrying on in a sort of pseudo-religiosity. There are sacrifices on false altars, and they're being quite religious about bringing these sacrifices, but they're not the sacrifices that the Lord has commanded. They're bringing leavened sacrifices, sacrifices with yeast. Their abundance has led them to sort of think as though dealing with God is somehow a commercial transaction. You know, I'm okay to sin this way as long as I pay this sacrifice. So you might be thinking, well, is it just their abundance? Well, God says no. He reminds them that in the past he'd withheld their blessing. When they'd had no bread. When they'd had no rain. When they'd had disease and plague. When they'd had war. But even in those circumstances, they didn't turn to him. So he says, this time we'll go the whole hog. You're going to get all of them together. And I'll remove you from the land and bring you all these things and more. And it sort of reaches a crescendo in chapter 4, verse 12, as he tells them, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. It's supposed to be terrifying. The lion is coming. The Lord, the God of hosts is his name. The God of armies is coming. The third oracle is in chapter 5, and it it takes the form of a lament, a a sort of weeping. Amos 5, verse 3. "For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out with a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that went out with a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. He's saying he will literally decimate them. And I do mean literally in that sense, because decimate means make only a tenth of. That's what he's going to do. Only a tenth will survive. That's the picture there. And yet, even though he's told them this is coming, he still pleads with them. Seek me and live, verse 4. Seek the Lord and live, verse 6. Seek good and not evil that you may live, verse 14. Don't go to the golden calf in Bethel. Don't go to your shrine in Gilgal. Go to me. Seek me and live. I'm the one who made the stars and the sea the day and the night. Don't be frightened of me in that way. Seek me. And yet they don't. They continue to oppress the needy. They continue to take bribes and pervert justice, we're told. And so God tells them they'll build these houses, these fancy houses, but not live in them. They'll plant vineyards for their expensive wines, but they'll not drink them. I will pass through your mist, God says in verse 17. The lion is coming. And then the final oracle in this middle section is from five hundred eighteen to six fourteen. God pronounces woe on those who are looking forward to God's judgment. There are Israelites who are sort of calling on God to judge their enemies. They're calling on God to judge the nations, but they're ignorant of the fact that God is coming for them. And he reminds them of the horror of judgment. It's a horrible day, says the Lord, a day of darkness. He tells them that they'll run from the lion, but they'll get eaten by the bear. Where the wall that you sought to rest on, to sort of lean against, will turn out to have snakes in them. They think again that their religious observance will save them. Their assemblies, their feasts, their songs, their sacrifices. Well, God tells them to stop singing. Stop singing and start listening. And Amos 5, verse 24 Let justice roll down like rivers and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's what God wants from them, not songs and festivals. But they won't. So God says he will take them and their idolatrous images and throw them out of the land. God invites the rich and powerful to have a look at the other lands that seem so secure and prosperous around them. But have since been destroyed by the Assyrians are you better than these kingdoms God asks in chapter 6 verse 2 they think their money is making them secure they're sitting on beds of ivory eating the choicest lamb and steak they sing along with the latest songs on their instruments which they've invented so much like leisure time have they got they're inventing instruments who drink wine from bowls rather than cups Then you know you've got a real problem don't you Who anoint themselves with expensive oils. They like to be seen as first. Well, says God, if you like being first, then you'll be the first to leave when the Assyrians come. Great and small will go. Amos 6, verse 11. And the great house shall be struck into fragments, and the little house into bits. It's an incredible picture of God's judgment that he'll bring on the people. But he's not finished yet. And so our last section, locusts, lemons, and the line of David. God here finishes the book with Amos with three visions that God has given Amos. The first is in chapter 7, and it's probably the most complicated. In chapter 7, we get sort of three pictures of judgment, the very sort of picturesque language in these visions, which makes them a bit different from the oracles. There are locusts in verse 1. There's fire in verse 4, and there's a plumb line in verse 7. A plumb line was used essentially to see how straight uh, a wall is and how likely it is to collapse. And in that way, it symbolizes a measuring of the rightness of the people and a foreshadowing of them falling over. The first two judgments, the locusts and the fire, God relents when Amos cries out on behalf of the people. God doesn't bring those judgments. But the third one, however, goes ahead. God promises that the nation will collapse. Their high places and their sanctuaries will fall down and be brought to ruin. In response to all this, Amos then is accused of treason by a prophet from Bethel. He writes to the king, this prophet, to get him in trouble and tells him to leave. Go to Judah. That's where they like this sort of thing. But Amos points out that God had appointed him a prophet when he was just a shepherd. He's no career prophet in it for the money or the glory or the fame. He's in it because he's got a message from the Lord. And a message which Amos just repeats to this guy. Israel will go into exile. That's the first vision. The second vision is in chapter 8. And is a vision of a basket of summer fruit. That might seem a little bit obscure uh, to us here. But it's a play on words. The end has come for Israel, says God. End in Hebrew is... Excuse my Hebrew, but k'etz. And summer fruit is k'etz. So it's sort of like very, very similar. It's a play on words. But what God is saying is that it's over for Israel. Hymns will become howlings. Feasts will become mournings. Sackcloth will be their clothing. Heads will be shaved. The day will be turned to night. We're told that it will be like a father mourning for his only son. And on top of that, God will take away his word. No more prophecies. No more visions. No more, thus says the Lord. God won't speak to them anymore. He'll give them the silent treatment. It will be a famine, but not a bread or of anything like that, but a famine of the word of God. Silence from the Lord. That's the second vision. And then the final vision is in chapter 9. Amos sees the Lord standing beside the altar. And it's a vision in two parts. Its first part is destruction. God is standing at the temple, calling it for it to be broken and to fall on the people in judgment. They are pictured almost like a naughty child trying to hide from their punishment. But God is clear. Wherever they go, wherever they try to hide, God will find them. If they dig to the depths, he will find them. If they ascend to the heavens, he will find them. If they go to the bottom of the sea, the top of the mountain, he will find them and he will punish them. He reminds them that he is the God who melts the earth, who commands the sea. He reminds them that although he brought them out of Egypt, it's true, he also brought the Philistines from Crete and the Syrians from Mesopotamia. And he destroyed their nations, even though he put them where they were. Why wouldn't he destroy Israel? He will shake them, he says, like a sieve. But with a sieve, you get something out of the bottom. Well, he's going to shake them like a sieve, but nothing's going to come out. It's that complete a judgment. But the book finishes on a high note, the second half of that picture. In that day, God says, the tent of David will be restored. The line of David will once again come to the fore, The people will possess even the lands of their enemies, classic lands of their enemies. The mountains will drip with wine. There will once again be prosperity and abundance. They will never again be uprooted from the land that God has given them. Now you might be thinking, well this sounds like some far off future, something way off. But the book of Acts sees it differently. In chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem... It says this, uh, Acts 15, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul. This is their third trip, if you were here this morning. Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with the, this words of the prophets... Sorry, and with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written, and then he quotes Amos. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So James sees the Gentiles turning to God. He sees the nations coming in. And he says, this is what Amos spoke about. Actually, this is what he was speaking of. That actually that tent of David now, it's been restored. The Lord Jesus and the Gentiles who come to trust in him will now come in. And of course, even this final vision of judgment, pictures uh, fits in with that time. Because actually God did give. His only son, didn't he? We talked about mourning for an only son. When Jesus came, the sky did turn black in the middle of the day. The judgment and salvation we see in that final vision are seen in Christ as he dies on the cross and then as he calls the nations in. And our era, the time we live in, bears those same marks. We live on this side of the cross awaiting his return. The tent of David is now up permanently and he welcomes all who come to him. His message is still, seek me and live in light of the judgment that's to come. He came that we might have life and have it to the full, the abundance of blessing seen in picture form here. Because after all, the Lord Jesus is the lion. That's what we see all the way through, the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered, who was slain and by his blood ransomed people for God. he's no tame lion as C.S. Lewis put it but he is good and we need to bear that in mind this is a very judgment heavy book but it's not because God is good that there's a problem sorry it's not it's not because God is not good that there's a problem the problem is that he is good it's not because he's powerless that there's an issue but because he's powerful the fault that is not with God but with us And sometimes we need that roar to awaken us, don't we, from our complacency. God roars to us in our circumstances and in scripture. But will we listen? Will we heed? There is no longer a famine of the word of God because Christ has come. He has spoken the final words. So let's listen to him and hear the lion roar. Let's pray that we'd be attentive to his voice. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this message that you gave to Amos. Father, it saddens us so much that you roared like a lion and your people didn't listen. Father, pray that we would not uh, fall into the same sin, the same mistake. But Father, help us to listen. Help us to wake up when you roar. Help us to wake up and listen to your word and look to Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.